Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful, all in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. This episode is sponsored by Paperless Parts, connecting buyers and suppliers of custom manufactured parts. The Paperless Platform is a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, estimating, quoting, administration, and order processing. It offers seamless integration with the accounting and ERP software tools that shops already use, such as QuickBooks, E2, and JobBoss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible by streamlining the quote-to-cash process. Spend less time quoting and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our friends at the NTMA, the National Tooling and Machining Association. The NTMA is an association of privately held, entrepreneurial-based, and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very active regional chapters that host local events, run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional members. As an association of peers, the goal of the NTMA is to help members of the U.S. precision custom manufacturing industry achieve profitable growth and business success in a global economy through networking, workforce development and training, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. To learn how your company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. Shazam, this is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. We are back with another episode with Jeff Gorman. This time, we dig into why I believe manufacturing will do well, really well, even if we are headed into a recession. Then, another broad-ranging pricing discussion with shop rate as the focus. Teaser, I don't think you can accurately or even semi-accurately come up with one rate for the entire shop. However, you do need a number to plug into your formulas. We talk strategies and considerations for these numbers. Well, let's get going. Jeff, good to see you this afternoon. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, Jay. Good to see you. Summertime is finally here, so uh, loving it. But shops are busy i don't know what you're hearing but what i'm seeing is shops are busy right now and usually summertime is slow and it's not the case yeah no i definitely felt the exact opposite working with our customers hearing great things from them getting more work you know and with that comes problems to solve like how do we get to quotes quicker how do we make this more efficient how do we make this more accurate so it's definitely been fun to see the industry kind of picking up the spring it's hard though, because you may not realize it, but you rely on times of the year when things are slow. So you can catch up, you can clean up, you can reset yourself for a surge. And when it's a nonstop surge, things that you come back to and clean up during the slower times never get cleaned up. And sometimes they really come back and bite you. And so that's, I guess, the downside of always being busy. It is nice once in a while to, to slow it down a little bit. Yeah. It's almost like if you got to make ice between hockey games, you got to redo the ice and mm-hmm. 
there's yeah. been no time for that. So at the end of the day, the ice is getting really chopped up out there. I like that analogy <laughs> and thought of it like that. And I'm going to write a post for LinkedIn shortly, but I think even if we do see a recession, it's going to be more of a consumer led recession and that manufacturing is going to stay strong. And I know that shop owners are always trying to forecast what's going to happen. Do I buy that piece of equipment? Do I make the investment in a building? Do I hire more people? And this is the reason I think manufacturing is going to stay strong. We are deglobalizing. The impact of the war in the Ukraine is disrupting the food and energy supply chains. China, the lockdowns that they had for COVID, that they've created staggering supply chain snarls that we're not even necessarily feeling all of them yet. And well, the result of it is that countries are bringing more back within their own borders and they don't necessarily have the infrastructure to do that. So the, there's going to be more demand for manufactured parts as opposed to easy outsourcing to another region of the world. And what I mean by that is specifically, I see the following segments as super strong. You have defense. We need to make reinvestments yeah. in defense to replace, if nothing else, to replace all of the arms that are going to Ukraine, the missile systems in particular, Raytheon is going to boom. They haven't made, I think it's the Stinger missile in over 10 years. You have healthcare that never slows down. And then you have that disruption in food, in raw materials, the iron ore and some of the more strategic materials, particularly that are used in the electric vehicles and in the solar cells. And then you also have energy. So I think we, and, and, and then also almost forgot food. So you have all these industries that are going to rebuild, not only in the US, but in other parts of the world. In, say, for example, John Deere, Caterpillar, these types of companies who are making the tools so that mining and farming can happen, they all buy parts from job shops cascades down and that's it's going to continue to keep the job shop world i think really strong so that's my two cents yeah definitely we, we talk about that a lot here as a team internally and you know to think about all the different industries that are impacted you know by the global events that are going on right now and think, think about what goes into keeping those industries running. It really is manufacturing that, that's at the center of that. Here's another one, the semiconductor plants, all the ones that they're building in Europe and the US now, that's billions, tens of billions of dollars of chip equipment. And doesn't mean it's going to replace the stuff over in Asia. There's a huge demand for chips, but definitely going to be some of the chip plants built in the US and Europe. And so who's, who's impacted by this more, Jay? Is it the buyer? Is it, is it the seller? You know, the, the, the manufacturer? Is it the buyer, the end consumer of the good? Who is it? What do you mean by impacted? Like, if we have to bring all of this work back into the U.S., basically, who is it that's going to see the effects of that? Is it me as an end consumer when I buy something off the shelf? Is it the 
company producing the good that's buying from the manufacturer or is it the manufacturer that's making the good or is it all three of those parties? I think it's all three. I think it's all three. However, one of the things that I don't know if it's fully recognized is most of American job shop manufacturing sells to businesses that are putting together a product. And then that product is sold to another business that is using it to make a product. And those products are sold to other businesses. So if you think of the mining, for example, if you are making parts for Caterpillar and then Caterpillar is selling to other businesses that are finally in the end use extracting the minerals from the earth. You have a lot of business to business to business interaction. And a lot of the consumer goods, consumers are much more price conscious than businesses. So a lot of that stuff is done in lower cost countries, particularly Asia. And you think of footwear and televisions, a lot of things that are mass produced. Yeah. A lot to think about there for sure. But, but as, as you rebuild infrastructure and all the different industries I talked about, bottom line is you need equipment to make things and job shop manufacturing, contract manufacturing is making the parts that will power the equipment to allow all these industries to reconfigure and do a lot more within the U.S., so you're saying we're in control of our own destiny here then? Well, it's a good time to be a manufacturer. That's what I think. Gotcha. And speaking of that, one of the things that you know I love to talk about is pricing. And you are on the front lines and you're talking to a lot of shops about their shop rate. So is that something you want to jump in today? Yeah, definitely, Jay. Like you said, I get to talk to a lot of shops. Usually the subject matters relating to how they're estimating, whether it be in the weeds with their pricing formulas or just a high-level top-down approach, but Mm -hmm. spend a lot of time tweaking, manipulating, and implementing formulas for customers to better estimate the cost to make their goods. And a lot of that goes into figuring out time. So we need to figure out how long it's going to take us to set up the part, how long to run the part, how long to post-process the part, how long to QA it. I've got to pack it and ship it. So stuff like that. And we get pretty, pretty scientific, as I like to put it, when we we do these things, we get granular using P3L paperless parts pricing language. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're able to get, get accurate and get consistently accurate. And, you know, there's another side of this. So we figure out time, right? But to get to a cost, you have to multiply time by a rate. Mm-hmm. And I, I often find that these rates are kind of like square numbers, whole numbers. And I just wonder how, <laughs> how, how shops land at these numbers. And maybe we could talk about like a few approaches of, of how you land at a shop rate and ways that you've seen shops do that um, and why it's important to understand mm-hmm. your shop rate. So I'll share that back when the big three automakers were more dominant in car manufacturing and particularly the dealerships, I was told a really simple way to figure out your shop rate is to call Ford, Chevy, and Chrysler and find out what each of their 
service department rates were. Add the three together, divide by three, and that was your shop rate. And now that I'm not sure how relevant that is, and it's a pretty crude way of doing it, but that is the way a lot of shops used to do it. And maybe some still do today. It's not unreasonable. It's certainly the big automakers have their pulse on it. But I think that there's so much that, that can go into shop rates. And the comment you made, which made me laugh, was the fact that they're all round numbers, 80, 85, 90, whatever it is. Yeah, they're never $92.17 for a shop rate. You, you probably haven't heard that one, right? No, I have not. <laughs> well, have you ever seen a shop rate that has sense in it? Yes, but not because someone calculated what that came down to. It's because they took a whole number and they said, we charge $150 an hour and 70% oh. of that is because of overhead or 30% is because of this and that. Okay. So, and then that permutates out to a decimal, but it's not like somebody's gone down and amortized their machine or at least that I've worked with. And I'm just wondering... Like what ways have you seen people calculate a shop rate? So one of the things that I really got into the nitty gritty at one point, trying to come up with what I consider real shop rates. And I threw up my hands and basically punted on it because there's so many components and there's so many subjective ways to look at it. Even if you're doing high volume production, the higher the volume of production, probably the more accurate you can get. But you have a people component, you have an equipment component, you have a facility component. And a simple example for machining is if you are running production and you have somebody whose three machines are under their belt that they're running back and forth between, do you allocate the same shop rate as you do when there's a job that they need to sit on one machine at the same time. So essentially with the three machines, you're collecting three times the machine rate portion of that hour of that shop rate. And it's important though, to capture that machine portion because they are times when they just sit at one machine tending it. So that's an example of how the shop rates get distorted from an equipment standpoint, facility, how do you charge for facility? You got your square feet. Do you do it by the number of square feet in the department? Do you, what about hallways, common area, electricity usage? Do you meter the electricity usage per machine? You know, we had lasers at Rapid, 5,000 watt laser, but we also had a 2,000 watt laser. Do you change your shop rate for laser based upon the wattage? But at the time of quoting, do you know, do you really know which laser that part's going into? So what I probably tended to do and probably a lot of shops do is you say, all right, we'll, we'll put in the electricity consumption for the 5,000 watt laser. And if it runs on the 2,000 watt, then maybe it takes a little longer. Where we probably made a little extra money on electricity. Does that sort of help you think about the ways that shop rates are... I guess, quite subjective. Yeah, that, that helps me understand why you can't be, I guess, exact upfront. So it's important to keep a holistic approach in mind right. for that and, and, reason. And so there needs to be a number in there. But what I try to teach to the 
people who were in my shop was there is no right or correct shop rate. It's a rate that allows us to get to the price that we know we make money at and have a fair profit margin. So what does that mean for manipulating price then? Well, so what's super important is I would much rather see a shop manipulate a shop rate and use markups perhaps, or all sorts of other levers, as opposed to manipulating the time. Because if you change the time, let's say you change the run time, now that goes into your ERP system, you win the job, and you've got an inaccurate run time that is going to be used in your scheduling. That, that's gonna kill you. You can't schedule within your ERP system if you are changing the time to get to the price that you need. And unfortunately, between spreadsheets and ERP systems, sometimes it's a lot easier to change the time than to go and manipulate rates or markups to get to the price that you know you need to be to win the job. Interesting. This is reminding me of some discussions I've had with customers where they said, you know, their customer wants the the price for this to be at a certain spot. And maybe it's not the price of the whole good or assembly, but maybe, you know, material price from the customers and can't, can't achieve more than this percent of the job. And I haven't seen a ton of that, but I'm wondering if you've ever dealt with that and like you, you were forced to manipulate say time for that reason, because you you couldn't capture. If you have good salespeople, they will, find out what the price has to be, whether it's what the customer has budgeted or what the competition is selling them the part for now. And you want to grab that part from them. So a lot of times, not a lot, but sometimes you have the knowledge of where you want to be and you will look at your, whether it's paperless parts or your ERP system, your spreadsheet, you will say, okay, we are 20% high. There I am using a whole number rather than 22.79% high. But you you say, okay, we're 20% high. How am I going to get that down? And in an ERP system and a spreadsheet, unless you have pre-configured levers to manipulate the price and you can do it either within operations or subsets, or at the final end price, when we created the tools at Rapid, we wanted to be able to manipulate price at a whole bunch of levels. So we might say, for example, we're gonna give away the plating. You know, we're, we're gonna charge costs for plating and not put any markup in there. And that gets us down to the price we need to be. Or simply you'd go and reduce the price by whatever the the percentage is to get you that 20%, like a 16% discount. The other thing, which I think is important, and maybe you get some comments on that, but I want to talk on different shop rates versus a global shop rate for everything. But anything I just said strike strike a chord with you? Yeah, I I actually think I, I wanted to move to that topic as well, because I understand why you can't get so exact now with the a shop rate and why it's important actually to not be exact because you're not, you, you can't plan that far in advance at the time of the estimate. 
why is there so much subjectivity? Like it, it, I don't understand how it can be just one rate for everything that comes in the door. And I, you know, I've seen three rates, you got run rate, overhead rate, burden rate, and whatnot, mm-hmm. all sorts of rates. But at the end of the day, people are using these broad numbers. And I know we just talked a lot about it, but I still can't wrap my head around it. It's, it's a good exercise. What I found by doing it, which again, I abandoned, but it allowed me to look at pricing from a bunch of different angles and sides. So it helped me better understand where my costs were in the shop. So whether it's overhead rates, burden rates, all those things, that's important to understand. But ultimately you need to put together a estimate, a price that you hope the customer will buy at, but gives you a profit margin that you're satisfied with. And I'll give you an example. One of the things that I never figured out is if I looked at every operation and whether it was one shop rate consistent across the operations or different shop rates for every operation, but I would do a, I call the build the quote from the ground up and say, you know, for them to inspect this part, it takes at least 18 minutes. And I try to get super exact. And then I would build up the quote and I'd say, you know, it's, it's reasonable. It's $80 an hour is not unreasonable for a shop rate. And I would come up with a price that was 50% maybe higher than the price I knew the customer would buy at. And I would look at all the numbers and none of my numbers for each operation were incorrect. At least you could justify them and you could argue that they were good, but collectively they were 50% high. And so that, and I looked at it from a bunch of different ways. And so that's when I sort of said, pricing is subjective and this doesn't make sense. And I'm going to use the shop rates as the tool to get to, I had, I think probably 10 different parts that I knew that I I knew where I wanted to be price wise. And I made sure the formula, the global formula would get us to that price for 10 different parts. It didn't work. It wasn't that it just worked for one or two parts. It worked for this variety of 10 different parts. And that's super important because you can develop a pricing engine that gets you for some of the parts, but then you put in other parts and it's way off. And, and, And that's hard. But a big piece of that is the shop rate for shipping, for example, should not be the same rate as for your laser. (laughs) <laughs> your laser is a million dollar piece of equipment. The ones we had used nitrogen, huge expense every minute that it was cutting the electricity. Shipping is not the same rate as your laser. Let me ask you this. What if I was sitting on the other side of the screen here and I, I owned a small shop mm-hmm. and I was asking you, you know, what have you seen people use for an hourly rate? What would you tell me? That's, those are the, you know, that's why I'm asking the question. Those are the types of questions we get here. Right. I sold rapid in 2017. So I don't know what the shop rates are. I would tell you, come up with your formulas, come up with the price that those formulas need to give you, whether, and this is whether you're doing it in a spreadsheet or ERP system or in paperless, but, and then manipulate the shop rates to get you where it works for say 10 different types of parts in your shop. And it may be $60 an hour, which is crazy. You're not going to tell somebody your shop rate is $60 an hour because it's really not, but that's what the formula tells you what it is. And, but I want to even get, tell you a way that we were more granular 
in that we knew, and this gets into the whole subjective thing, we knew on the machining side that a one or two setup aluminum part would fly through the shop. Anybody could do it. And we had a shop rate. We had three different levels of complexity that we put shop rates on. And we had a shop rate for simple parts, medium complexity parts, and high complexity parts. And those three shop rates were quite distinct, but we knew we could charge less for the one or two set up aluminum parts. And we would be rolling in the dough because they flew through the shop. Whereas the, particularly, let's say the higher complexity, you know, we might scrap more parts. You had to have more experienced people on them. So we even went that far as in one operation to have three different hourly rates. And a lot of times, well, not a lot of times, you can use geometry to segregate parts into different complexity categories. It's, you, you can make a call as the estimator, but if you are interrogating the geometry, you can put them into different buckets and do a quick check when you're estimating as opposed to trying to figure it all out. Yep. I see a ton of customers leveraging that type of logic, not necessarily to assign a shop rate, but just for their own information when they're looking at a quote, they want to get an assessment of how complex the part is mm-hmm. right out of the gates. And in paperless, how we go after doing that is count up the number of feedback features basically we get off of the part and mm-hmm. then design for manufacturability warnings that paperless calls out. So mm-hmm. we can we can kind of aggregate those and say, all right, you got 10, you know, 10 of the same feature is a lot easier than 10 different features. Mm-hmm. That's the type of logic that is built off, but basically we'll have customers that have a work center or operation and paperless doesn't do any pricing. It's the first on their router. And it says, you know, this is a complexity level one, two, or three. And you know, mm-hmm. some shops have a, a one to five range, whatever it might be, mm-hmm. but they'll use that to, they'll use that to impact their run times. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that different from impacting your shop rate? Well, I'll give you an example. And this is the beauty. Once you start really being able to interrogate geometry and or prints, let's say that I have a one setup aluminum part, but I have 10 design for manufacturing warnings coming up in the system. It's probably not a simple part anymore. So I might have a rule that if there's more than two design for manufacturing warnings, that it gets push to the next level of complexity and invokes your next higher rate. Right. Yep. Yep. Interesting. Do you think it's better to capture the subjectivity in the shop rate versus time? Well, some things, you know, will will take longer. For example, if you have a lot of tolerances called out, not the block tolerance or plus or minus five, you know that you're going to spend more time in inspection. So one way you could do that is you could have for every tolerance, you add a minute and a half for an inspection point or whatever is reasonable. And if you've got 10 of those, 
now you're adding 15 minutes to the inspection, whereas a part that's plus or minus five all around, you know, you're, you're putting the mics on it in certain places and boom, it's out of there. So you, you are, as you just said, impacting time. It's the same person doing it. So you don't touch your shop rate, but you can use the geometry to drive the time. And again, that's what you want because the worst thing is, let's say it's the end of the month, you got to get all these parts out and you didn't account for all the inspection time that was going to be taken on some higher complexity parts. If you figure that out up front and the estimating, put it into the time, your scheduling gets much more solid on the back end. Does this tie into repeat work at all? You guys did a lot of repeat work, if I'm not misunderstood, or taking that prototype into production. So like if you quote this thing once and you're kind of inflating your times, thinking back to the start of this discussion, like you're kind of inflating your times as opposed to using the levers like shop rate and markup. How does that impact like the requote? We did some production, but we had a different philosophy than most shops in regards to production. And I'll throw it out there because I, I always want to be fair with pricing, but not leave money on the table. And so I treated production as we did not charge as much as prototypes, but we didn't compete and try to do a cost plus model, which is what a lot of shops do for production. We said, we want to hit a certain profitability level and our shop, even though we had separate production facilities, it wasn't as efficient as a true production shop, but we priced to a profitability level. And if we got the business, great. If not, we said, well, thank you. We appreciate the opportunity to quote uh, and no hard feelings. So we let the amount of business we captured that way for production slowly grow our production business over time. And it actually was, I don't know if I've ever talked about this before, but one of the things I figured out, let's say you have a five-year product life cycle. The first 12 to 18 months of that five-year product cycle is probably where 80% of the profit is made on the part. Because for the first 12 to 18 months, they're dialing in how they make the product. And after that 12 to 18 months, now they go to cost reductions. And that's when it goes to maybe sustaining engineering into more of a sustaining buyer instead of a new product buyer. And they squeeze you. And rightly so. That's their job. They, they, they want to make money. It's a more repeatable process now. But the margins on parts, and this is me spitballing it, but I think it's true, is that after 12 to 18 months, there's going to be a lot more pricing pressure on a shop and the margins will not be as high. So my philosophy was we hung on for the 12 to 18 months. And when they came to ask us for price reductions, we said, sorry, we were not able to do that. They took the business away and that was fine because we always had new products, new, new 12 to 18 month production coming in and that created capacity for that. So it's a different way of looking at it, but I think it, you should be aware that the last 36 to 42 months are 
I think that's the right time frame. But anyways, the, the last two thirds of the product life cycle, you're going to get squeezed on margin. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I so I don't think I knew what product life cycle meant, but when as you were talking through it, I think I gained an understanding. So is that like well, let's let's I'm say a, you have let's say you have a new MRI machine that GE is making, and they every five years or, or let's go even with cars every five years you come out with a new model. So in car manufacturing, you, you're hopefully. <laughs> Because you, you want that car to last, then if you're buying it in the first 12 to 18 months, it comes out. But they're, they're figuring stuff out. And then once they've got it nailed down, and in car manufacturing, they probably do it a lot faster. But once they get it nailed down, it's all on autopilot. And then but you need to refresh it for a variety of reasons. Sometimes a product life cycle is three years. Sometimes it could be 10 years. I got you. So like, let you drive a Jeep, right, Jay? Yes. So like if Mopar is asking for the same part for three years in a row, you know, there's less room for profit mm -hmm. at that point in time is what this is all about. Yeah. Interesting. Automotive is not a good example because automotive's got, it's so dialed in from a cost perspective. But if you are a manufacturer and you build a hundred units a year and you really, you're sort of high mix, low volume, it, let's say it's a hundred units a year and the units are selling for 200,000, the machining and the sheet metal components, perhaps, I don't know, maybe they're $2,000 of the hard cost. So if they squeeze you down to 2,000 to 1,500, it's a 25% price reduction, but it saves them a quarter of a percentage on cost. And that's not a ton and there's probably a lot of work to squeeze that out of the shops i had never heard someone you said you didn't you don't know if you've talked about this before i've never heard someone bring that up or thought about that even but like i constantly hear shops saying that they have the buyer come back to them and beat them up on the price i today looked at a spreadsheet from one of our customers from his customer mm -hmm. built them a spreadsheet it said vendor a vendor b vendor c vendor d mm -hmm. and then you know the guy I was talking to and it's, it was his buyer <laughs> saying, here's your price in compared to the price. The other six vendors gave me. And it was for like 10 or 12 part numbers. Yeah. So he was assessing basically, you know, he was higher than the other vendors for some parts and lower for other vendors on other parts. Yeah. Well, cher cherry, pick cherry picking on quotes is a whole other topic we can get into sometime and how to thwart that. Yeah. So it, it's interesting that you just, you kind of beat that. Well, so next time it happens, ask them, how long have you been making that part? And almost yeah. invariably it'll be, they've been doing it for at least a year. Well, the but whole takes, conversation started. He was trying to win more work from the buyer for the next three years. So, and he's getting beat yeah. up and, and it's, it's interesting it, that you flipped the script sort of in. It's a lot more work for a shop because you have a part number for 12 to 18 months instead of maybe five years our shop was set up to do that. Not all shops want to be set up like that or can be. Yeah. Well, this is great to catch up with you and get into shop rates. If there's anything else you think of, maybe we can add a piece of it to the next time we talk or we can talk about how to thwart those guys, cherry picking the parts that you misquote on a multi item quote and only give you the ones that you know you're going to lose money on. 
but we'll save that for another day. Yeah, definitely. I'd, I'd love to talk about that sometime. I think this was insightful. I, I still don't know how to calculate shop rate, but I think I know why there's no good way to do it. So I, that that's the, I think that's the learning for <laughs> yes. today. Yes. We'll, we'll leave it as, again, there's no right or correct shop rate. There's only the price that you feel good about selling the part at and the shop rate that gets you to that. Yeah. Understood. I think that's the answer I was looking for. All right. Enjoy the rest of your day, Jeff. You as well. Till next time. Thanks for listening to the Job Shop Show podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Not only do I read every single one, it also helps me understand what content matters most to you. Thanks again for listening to the Job Shop Show.